He was screaming at his face, You're a stupid imbecile. Butch McGregor was only 18 years old. He stood there trembling as the drill instructor screamed at him, adding several other choice and, frankly, abusive terms. Butch hadn't actually done anything seriously wrong. He just managed somehow to get slightly out of step with the rest of his platoon as they marched across the drill field. And yet the slightest infraction, the the tiniest mistake would cost him 50 push-ups or 10 laps around the drill field in full combat gear. Just a few days earlier, he had stood to attention with his arms outstretched, holding up his rifle while his, his drill instructor chewed him out for being such a weakling. The Bible frequently calls on us, his people, God's people, to fear the Lord. What does that mean? Is the fear of a new recruit for a verbally abusive drill sergeant a good picture? Or is the fear of God the dread that one feels in the presence of a superior? Certainly a drill sergeant's job is to to take a recruit and turn him into a warrior. To take a boy and turn him into a marine. And that means training and hardship and discipline and consequences and correction. And these are the very kinds of things that God will eagerly take and bring into our life to take us from a place of of brokenness and to make us the men and women he wants us to be, bringing hardship and discipline and correction that we need in order to fulfill his purpose. But what does the Bible actually mean when it speaks of the fear of the Lord? Is it something quite different from the fear that one has in the presence of an abusive drill instructor? We're going to look at a passage in the Bible It's in Deuteronomy chapter 10. That's the fifth book of the Bible. In the passage we're looking at, God has already given the law of God, the Ten Commandments to the people. And he, at this point, is is zeroing in to give additional instructions so that the Israelites and so that we, who have been engrafted into Israel, will understand what it is that God is calling us to and calling us to live as his people. This is Deuteronomy chapter 10. And in your pew Bible, it's page 290. We'll also project it. We're going to look at at chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. This is God's word. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I, that is Moses, am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them and he has chosen you their descendants above all the nations as it is today circumcise your hearts therefore don't be stiff-necked any longer for the lord your god is god of gods 
and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourself were aliens in Egypt. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him. Hold fast to him. Take your oaths in his name. For he is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down into Egypt were 70 in all. And now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of the sky. Hear God through his servant Moses charges us to fear the Lord. In verse 12, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord, fear Yahweh your God? So what does that mean? The fear of God is spoken of even in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, chapter 9, the the early disciples of Jesus were living in fear of the Lord, and that was a good thing. But what does it mean? Because what it doesn't mean is to be afraid of the Lord. That's something quite different. Tim Keller points this out. He says, when we go to the Old Testament, where the term the fear of the Lord is very common, we come upon some very puzzling usages. Often the fear of the Lord is linked with great joy, Proverbs 28, 14 tells us, Happy is the one who feareth always. How can somebody who's constantly in fear be filled with constant happiness? Perhaps most surprising is Psalm 130, verse 4, where the psalmist says, Forgiveness comes from you, therefore you are feared. Forgiveness And grace, doing what we would not expect if it's just talking about being afraid of God. If you're talking about being afraid of God, you would expect uh, that that forgiveness would actually increase your love of him. But in fact, it's it's a situation where where this fear of God is something that, that is brought about because of forgiveness, because of grace. In Exodus 20, verse 20, uh, Moses said to the people, he said, Do not be afraid... God has come to test you so that the fear of God will keep you from sinning. Hear that? It's like a contradiction. Don't be afraid, but fear God. It seems contradictory to us, but there's a distinction between being afraid, don't do it, and properly fearing, do that. It's not the same as being afraid. So then what is it, Greg? The fear of God is on one hand, it's a call into proper relationship with God. Uh, you know, they, they, these believers who were hearing Moses speak in this instance, they were, they were already marked off sacramentally as belonging to God. They had received the sign and seal of, 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 of circumcision, and they were already engrafted into the people of God. And yet, in that very context, here in this passage, verse 16, Moses says, Therefore, circumcise your hearts. That's what it means to fear God in a Christian New Testament context. It's like he's saying, great, you've joined a church. Great, you've been baptized. Now baptize your insides too. Entering into relationship with God. 
It's a call to respond to him with ourselves, with our lives, putting ourselves under his healing, protective wings. He he uses the terminology here of not being stiff-necked because to fear God and proper relationship with him is to to bend our neck before him, to, to humble ourselves. It's a call to teachability. He speaks in verse 13 of prioritizing obedience to his commandments because humility uh, of, of being not stiff-necked but being circumcised, you're baptized on the inside. The fear of God requires the ability to say that I'm okay being wrong, God. And when, when I and your word are in conflict, I'm going to assume that you're not the one that needs to shift. That I am. It means to humble ourselves before our Creator and to proceed in relationship with Him. And the fear of God also means being overwhelmed with something, being overwhelmed with awe for God. Now, what is awe for God? Awe is a, is a sense of reverential respect that's combined with, with wonder. Uh, awe is a sense that you're dealing with something or someone that's so much larger than you, so much more powerful, so much more worthy than yourself. We speak of being awestruck. We speak of being wonderstruck. We speak of being astonished, amazed, stricken by the immensity of it all. If you could, if you could take a second and just picture a face of someone that you really admire, a public figure that you look up to more than perhaps anyone else. Somebody, it could be an actress or an athlete or a royal or a statesman, an actor or a musician. I want you to, to picture their face right now. And then I want you to imagine that you go to O'Connell's Pub after church today, and you're in there, and this person walks into O'Connell's Pub right here in St. Louis, and there's a hush that comes over the entire pub, and every eyeball in the place, even with its dimly lit orange glowy bulbs, every eyeball in there is looking at this person, and people are pointing, people are whispering to one another, and then this very person that you look up to so greatly sees you across the pub and walks over to your pew, and because and, 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 you do sit in pews there, and, and they put their hand out to you, and they say, Hi. And you stretch out your hand, and you look at it, and it's trembling. That's all. It's not trembling out of a fear because you're afraid of this person. It's trembling out of a fear, meaning an, an awe, a, a sense of respect, of amazement when you consider this person who is now in your presence. That's awestruck on a small human scale. And yet it's a positive fear. It's about admiration. It's even a joyful fear. And that's what the fear of the Lord is. It's being overwhelmed with awe for God. Now, what does it mean then to be overwhelmed with awe? To be overwhelmed is to be caught up in something larger than yourself. Something that makes all your concerns and priorities and agendas and, uh, seem so much smaller in comparison. want you to imagine, if you will, that you... And, and, and those close to you have rented an Airbnb on a fine Gulf Coast beach in central Florida. And you're sitting there, you know, you've got people coming over that evening, good family friends, and you've noticed taking the stemware out of the dishwasher, because it's a nice Airbnb, that, that some of the glasses are kind of cloudy and have some spots. And so you go and gla- grab 
grab the, the kind of green microfiber dish towel and you're very carefully trying to get all the spots out of each piece of stemware because you've got people coming over at 6 and it's already 4.30 and you still have to take a shower. And as you're doing that, you look out the window and you notice that the beach has just become miles and miles wide. And you're wondering what's going on. And so you step outside, still trying to get the smudges off of this piece of stemware. And as you step outside, you see the ocean coming at you very rapidly. And soon your ankles are underwater and then your knees are underwater and then your waist is underwater and then suddenly you're swimming and then the tops of all the houses go down under the water and all the trees go down under the water and all you can see are a couple high rises in Tampa 20 miles away and you're still sitting there and it's been a tsunami. You've been caught up in it and you're, you're underwater and everything has changed and you look and you're still holding this piece of stemware but suddenly it's a lot less important because you've been overwhelmed by a higher priority. You've been overwhelmed by something bigger. To be overwhelmed is not an emotion. Don't hear what I'm saying. To be overwhelmed is a sense of priority that the Lord, his word, his promise, his commandment, obedience to him, believing his word is so central to everything that it has to define everything you do. How you think about things, how you value things, what you're willing to get rid of, and what you have to hold on to. This is being overwhelmed with a sense of the awe of God, that God's supremacy is what matters. And that's because of who and what God is. Did you see in verse 13, this is not grounded in personal emotional experience. It is grounded in the objective reality of who God himself is. For the Lord, verse 17 Your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. What what Moses is saying, what God is saying through him, that this is one God that you are never, ever going to convince to bless your personal agenda. He doesn't take bribes. He shows no partiality. You're not going to be able to pay him off. You will never be able to twist his arm. He is unimpeachable, and he's mighty, and he is awesome, meaning he is awe-inspiring. He is the God that all of the other gods are afraid of. He is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. In verse 14, to this Lord, to Yahweh your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. If you could step out of space and time for one moment and look at the vast immensity of the cosmos that is so much bigger than our little planet and our little solar system and our little Milky Way. If you could see the vast immensity of all that is and then imagine how much larger and how much more vast, how much more immense must be the God who sustains all of that second by second simply by his word. To the Lord your God belong the heavens even the highest heavens. Being overwhelmed with awe for God because of who and what God is. The fear of the Lord is to be overwhelmed with awe before God. And yet the fear of God is also to be overwhelmed by love for God. In verse 12, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God and to love him? And Keller says it this way. He says, fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something 
The fear of the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. It's why the more we experience of God's grace and forgiveness, the more we experience a trembling awe and wonder before the greatness of all that he is and has done for us. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. If we could go back to Butch in boot camp, Butch McGregor, he wasn't a fool. He figured out boot camp. He learned to respect authority promptly and correctly carrying out all commands. And near the end of his basic training, he was actually beginning to enjoy the challenge of this tough and disciplined life. And then something happened that doesn't very often happen because the the commanding general over the entire outfit announced that he would be coming to inspect all of the new recruits. before they left boot camp. It was um, nerve-wracking. You can kind of picture the, the, the disciplined pandemonium that broke out among the drill inspectors. They're shouting orders left and right. Standards are being pushed to even higher levels. Rifles are being meticulously polished. Boots are being cleaned until they shine like mirrors. Barracks are well-scrubbed, beds tightly made. And then General Collins and his entourage entered the barracks, and Bush stood stiffly at attention. As the general paused in front of him, fear gripped him as the general carefully looked Butch over with cold, steely eyes and asked him a series of questions. Butch's mouth was as dry as cotton as he sought to answer respectfully. He experienced a profound sense of awe as if he, a lowly, humble recruit, stood in the presence of this great Marine Corps general. And and following basic, what happened was that Butch was assigned to a divisional motor pool And General Collins was promoted to be a major general, and he became commanding officer of the entire division. And to make a long story short, Butch became his driver. And when he first received these orders, he was terrified. He had mixed emotions. It was this awe to be able to work day in and day out driving around a major general within the Marine Corps. And yet the absolute fear he felt in the presence of of one whose steely cold eyes he still very much remembered from his days in boot camp. Sergeant McGregor, as Butch was now called, uh, soon discovered that those steely blue eyes, uh, behind them was a no-nonsense general who, he was tough, but he was also fair. And as he listened to the general's conversations uh, in the car with others, he was often amazed at the wisdom he heard. He noted the increased morale that other, other Marines felt in his presence, the esprit de corps that he triggered within them, and his awe for the general actually increased as he drew closer to him, though its dominant aspect was no longer fear. Now it was really respect and admiration. See, Butch had always shown respect to the general. What changed is he started to feel respect for the general. One day he realized that he'd even begun to like the general. That he was fairly certain the general actually liked him. And despite the growing personal relationship, Butch never lost the sense that they were never going to be buddies. It was always a yes, sir, or a no, sir. And its story gives us a, a partial picture of what the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the fear of the Lord. Don't get too close. Don't feign a fake intimacy. He is still a consuming fire, even if he is 
good. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with awe for God. Love for God. And yet for love for God to take hold, something else has to happen. How is it possible to be overwhelmed with the love of God? You've seen how, uh, 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 you've seen how God presents himself as a holy God, a scary God, frankly. And with that kind of God, when you're called to fear him, how can you get to a place, friends, where you actually love him, where you long to spend time with him, where you can't wait to get to worship, where you can't wait to open his word, where you can't wait to spend time praying with him, when you want to introduce others to him and talk about him because he's become something so beautiful, so something that you love so immensely, someone that you love so completely that you're overwhelmed with love for him. How can that happen when we're dealing with a God who is to be feared? You have to see how God is overwhelmed with love for you. You will never be overwhelmed by the love of God until you sense just how overwhelmed he is by his love for you, his people, and you individually. To see God's overwhelming love means that you see your story overwhelmed by the story of redemption. You say, Greg, God can't, God can't be overwhelmed with love for me. I'm too small, I'm too sinful, I'm too insignificant, I'm too damaged, I'm too addicted, my marriage is too much of a mess, and yet that is precisely what God says he is drawn to. You have just fit the perfect description of somebody that God wants to enter into a saving relationship with as Lord. Uh, What does God choose? Verse 19, he says, You yourselves were slaves, you were aliens, you were refugees, you were migrants, you were unwanted undocumented, without a home when you were in Egypt. Verse 19, they were migrants, strangers in a strange land, immigrants without green cards, with no rights as a citizen. You know, you see the refugee camps in Turkey or Jordan. You see people stuck at the borders and your heart goes out for them because they don't have a home. And God says, that's what you were. And my heart broke for you. I saw you slaves in Egypt. I saw you with no one to take you in. And I saw your chains, and I heard the whips, and I saw your tears, and I heard your cry, and I came to you when you were refugees, when you were migrants, when you were slaves. I came to you, and I redeemed you, and I said, I am going to take you into my home, and I am going to become your husband, and you are going to become my bride, and I am going to love you and wash you and equip you and bless you because my heart is overwhelmed with love for you. He loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Verse 19, and you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. God is saying to you, I am drawn to your brokenness. I am drawn to your bondage. I am drawn to your weakness. And don't forget that that's who you were when I claimed you and overwrote your story and overwhelmed your story. Your life isn't about building a great career, building an awesome family, getting by another paycheck. Your life, when you come to Jesus, it's rewritten and your story, all those particulars become overwhelmed in a larger overarching story of the redemption that God gives, having once been lost, being found. 
having once been unwanted, but now being cherished, having once been the refugee and becoming now the bride. And would you look at the language the Bible uses to describe God's love for you here, friends? Verse 15, yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you. The Hebrew word that's translated affection here is the Hebrew word hashach. Elsewhere, it's translated to long for someone, to love someone, to become attached to someone, to set your love on another person, to feel an urge toward that person. It's translated to become impassioned for someone, to desire another person. Is the sinking in. He's saying that God's love for you as his people, as a believer, means that God's heart is longing for you. He longs to spend time with you. How could an eternally self-sufficient God experience longing? The Bible says he doesn't live in temples made by hands. He's not served by man as if he needed anything. So how can he experience longing? We sometimes, you know, we sometimes experience longing because we lack something, but with God that's actually not true. What is longing? What does it mean? Uh, If you've ever met someone that you longed for, maybe sometime when you were young, many years ago, perhaps you remember the ache that you felt in your gut when they were gone. Do you remember being young and in love, holding your phone, hoping they will call you, waiting for their call, checking your apps to see if they've sent anything, any communication, any reaching out, wondering what they're doing, looking at photos of them, thinking about them. Friends, that's longing. That's what the Hebrew calls hashach, uh, to, to set one's desires upon another to the point where you long for them. It's what the NIV here translates as setting his affection upon you. In verse, uh, in Genesis 34, it's a term that's used for a man falling in love with a woman. My son Shechem has set his heart on your daughter. You say, Greg, that sounds too romantic. Well, yes, it does. But that's because it is. It's how the Bible describes it. The Lord has set his affection upon you. He is rejoicing over you now. He's saying, you are the one. You are now bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. He is filled with longing for you. He has become impassioned for you. He is filled with with desire for you. His heart is overwhelmed with the thought of you. The Lord has placed his affection upon you. And now he has claimed you as his own. Do you hear that? It's not a distant God. This is not an impersonal God. This is a God who feels, a God who feels affection. And all that affection is resting upon you, his Israel, his people, his church, his beloved, in the New Testament, his bride. Verse 15, he chose you, the Lord is overwhelmed with affection for the one he has chosen. He's overwhelmed in his love for you, and that ultimately drove him to be truly overwhelmed by his love. 
for you. It's the overarching story of the Bible. It's the love affair between God and us, his sinful, damaged, broken people. For God set his love on us, friends. And to do that, he would have to pay a cost, a price. When a man in the ancient world chose a woman as his bride, he would have to assume all of that bride's debts. He would have to pay the bride price. And, 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 and friends, we brought a lot of debt into this marriage with our God. And yet God was so overwhelmed with passion for you, so overwhelmed with desire for you as covenant people that he willingly came to earth in the person of his son, Jesus, and he took upon himself your debt and mine, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our shame, the guilt for every act of violation for every cruelty, for every deception, the debt for every betrayal and every rebellion, all of the shame of God's people from Adam to the end of history was placed upon Jesus and he paid the bride price for me and for you. He paid our debt. He paid it in full. Friends, if you have Jesus Christ, if he is your savior, if he is your rescuer, you will never have to bear that debt. It has been paid, paid in full, canceled, stamped, and filed away, and he looks at it no more. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Because God was overwhelmed by his love for you to the point where he was willing to be burdened for you and he was willing to let his love for you destroy him because he was not willing to continue without the one he loves. That's the cross on which Christ died. Nothing can get in the way of God's affection for you. Not your sin, not somebody else's sin, not what you've done, not what's been done for you. You are redeemed. He has chosen you. He has washed you. He has set his affection upon you. And that has driven him to pay the price to have you because he's not willing to let you go. It's what we see in the incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. A God who's willing to shoulder whatever suffering he must shoulder in order to protect and possess you. Verse 21. For he is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders. And you saw them with your own eyes. When war broke out, Butch McGregor's division was shipped overseas. And as the general's driver, Butch was never involved in actual combat per se. At least that wasn't the intention but they often traveled through some very dangerous territory together. You can picture the lonely stretch of road, bombshells all around that afternoon, a shifting front line and a continual risk of enemy strike snipers. And, and you can imagine the panicked look as their car struck what today we would call an improvised explosive device. They hit a landmine. General Collins was thrown clear of the car and was very seriously injured when his body slammed to the ground. Butch, meanwhile, remained trapped and unconscious in the front seat of a burning vehicle. 
You can hear the sound almost. The sound as the blaze is growing around him, but he's not awake. He's injured. He, he can't recognize the danger of being in that vehicle at that time. And you can almost taste the heat, the, 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 the red-hot metal in the vehicle, wondering when that gas tank is going to explode. And yet in the midst of all of this, despite severe injuries, the, the general managed to prop himself up from a distance. And though his mind was foggy as he assessed the situation, he managed to drag himself toward the car, and though he could not use his legs well at all, he pulled himself up into the vehicle with all the strength he had. Mind in a daze, you can, you can hear bullets from a sniper whizzing by, you can smell the metal, you can, you can, you can picture it as he's trying to unbuckle and get out his driver. smell the gasoline burning felt it inside his nose the sear of the general's forearm touching the blazing metal of the door jam frantically trying to get his friend out frantically trying to rescue his charge while the sounds below him told him a warning of an impending explosion and then the graze of the bullet and the pop of his ribs that were no longer attached the strain of dragging the dead weight of an unconscious Marine away from a vehicle when one leg didn't work at all and the other would barely cooperate. You can feel the shockwave as the gas tank finally blew and you can almost see the two of them hiding in that ditch, the general straining to radio in their coordinates as he too blacked out from a massive loss of blood. It would be a general and his driver who were going to die in that ditch that afternoon, their vehicle leaving a trail of smoke that would be seen for miles around. And as he lay there dying, cradling Butch's bloody body, the general could hear in a dream a chopping sound like someone chopping wood in a forest. He could feel as if in a dream the wind picking up around him as facing a a gale at sea and then the whirring of machinery and he felt his soul being lifted up to God and then nothing. Days later, the general woke up. Both the general and his driver had been evacuated by helicopter to a field hospital and then transferred to a medical center on base. After surgery, fluids, a lot of blood, and days of rest, General Collins had recovered sufficiently to be able to resume some limited duties. Meanwhile, Butch remained in the hospital for what seemed like ages. And you can picture him there, still young, but bandages all over, leg up in suspension, tubes coming in and out of him every which way, constant antibiotics bringing the infection under control, and the frequent visitor who he would often notice sitting at his bedside. For despite the pressures of commanding a division in battle, General Collins would always stop by to spend a few hours with Butch to check on his progress. Butch was surprised at the general's concern, but what really astounded him was the realization that at the scene of the accident, the general had literally risked his life in order to save him. As he lay in bed over the coming weeks, Butch frequently recalled with amazement the story he had been told of the day that General Collins had dragged him from a fiery death. 
You can see him now thinking of the bullets the general took in order to rescue him, a mere driver, the way the general had grabbed him and held him and dragged him through gunfire while himself severely injured, the way he was found cradled in a dying general's lap, the way the evacuation team at first assumed the general was already dead, how they thought there was no way the general was going to make it. So great was the trail of blood from the vehicle to the trench in which they were found. If the helicopter had not arrived when it did, his commanding officer would have died saving his life. You can picture the young soldier's ribcage shake, the tears forming in his eyes as he is overwhelmed by the general and all that he was to him. And then all those times the general stopped by and spent a few hours, Butch could add it all up. He realized the rescue was not simply a spur-of-the-moment heroic act. This wasn't just something the general did out of duty or honor. No, he wouldn't be at his bedside if it was a spur-of-the-moment act of honor. He could add it up. The general felt concern for him. Butch often pondered the question, why would a two-star general in command of an entire Marine division in battle risk his own life to save a mere sergeant? He could readily understand one enlisted Marine risking his life for his buddy on the battlefield, but a general for a sergeant? How could it be? And he slowly came to the conclusion that despite their vast difference in rank, the general genuinely loved him. His general loved him and was even willing to die in order to save him. And that thought left him overwhelmed. Now, in addition to this sense of awe and respect and admiration, Butch began to experience genuine love toward his general. He longed for the day when he could once again be the general's driver. He determined that if he ever got out of this hospital, he was going to be the best driver the Marine Corps had ever had. He knew that however much the general and he loved each other, they would never be buddies. It would always be yes, sir, and no, sir. And that's how both General Collins and Sergeant McGregor would want it. But his wonder at General Collins, his awe and respect and admiration, friends, they were now sealed in a relationship of committed, self-sacrificial love. He was overwhelmed by the love of his commanding Officer, And that, friends, is what the Bible means by the fear of God, a healthy fear of God, being overwhelmed by both the greatness and the love of one who is so much infinitely more great than us. For when your commanding officer, Jesus, saw you unconscious in a burning vehicle coming under enemy fire, he took the bullets that were intended for you. He felt the burn. And the burn he felt was a lot more searing than the flames that this life can give you. And Jesus didn't get evacuated by helicopter. He cradled your unconscious body, shielding you from oncoming fire. He rescued you, and he rescued you at the cost of his own love because he, as God the Son, was overwhelmed by his love for you. That's what can transform dread into love. It's a foundation for a healthy fear of God. The wonder that one so awesome, so infinite, so terrifyingly good would enter into a relationship with you to rescue you and to love you with a love that overwhelms. Let's pray. 
Our Father, you are indeed the one who does mighty works. You are the one who sent Jesus into the world. You are the one who came to rescue. You are the one who gave up everything to gain the one thing you wanted, which is us. And so, Father, we now consecrate the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, to your use, that you might preach the gospel in sacrament to us, your people, for great is your love, and so great is your faithfulness. Amen.